Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Formatted to Fit Your Screen, the show where two people who have seen a movie have a conversation. I'm your host, Zach Tennant, and this week on the show, I am joined by returning guest Caitlin Hart of The Simpsons, Not a Simpsons podcast, to discuss 1972's The Heartbreak Kid, directed by Elaine May, written by Neil Simon, starring Charles Grodin, Jeannie Berlin, and Sybil Shepard. Caitlin, as I mentioned, is one half of The Simpsons, Not a Simpsons podcast, discussing the newlyweds Nick and Jessica and its cultural impact some two decades on. And you may remember she was on in uh, January or so for the Something's Gotta Give episode, so kind of a a bit of a rom-com expert when we uh, have that on the show here. So something we get to bond over on this episode. We talk about this movie, we talk a little bit about its uh, place in history and the comedies that came before and after it and what made it stand out then and today. We try our best to contextualize this movie a little bit based on uh, some of what it has influenced since then and sort of where it came from in film history leading up to it. We talk about the career trajectories of Neil Simon and Elaine May and how they intersect with uh, some of their contemporaries. All in all, a very good episode on this one. If you're enjoying the show, thank you. You can support by telling a friend, rating, reviewing, subscribing. Uh, Any platform that you listen to it on, a subscription is much appreciated. If you have suggestions for future episodes or people you'd like to hear on the show in the future... You can email formattedtofitpod at gmail.com. You can follow on Instagram at formattedtofit. Come back at the end of the episode, and I'll let you know who's joining me in two weeks' time. But for now, please enjoy 1972's The Heartbreak Kid with Caitlin Hart. Our first guest is uh, sad and uninterested. He doesn't know where the camera is. He doesn't want to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the star of Beethoven's Second, Charles Grodin. We are here today talking with Caitlin Hart. Caitlin, you're back on. Uh, you were on earlier this year for the Something's Gotta Give episode. I think uh, episode 20, maybe. And now this is going to be episode... Th- or This is episode 30, and you were on for episode 21. So we're getting into a whole new run of shows here. We're in technically year two of the show even though it was just earlier this year that you were on but all this to say welcome back on the show yeah thanks for having me back my mom told me uh recently that she listened to the something's gotta give episode and i had to re-listen to it to make sure i didn't say anything weird (laughs) (laughs) that i wouldn't want my mom to hear but i didn't yeah it was good it passed the mom (laughs) test yeah yeah she's like i liked it i like that movie (laughs) i do this show i i i think my parents don't listen they've said that they don't and they um i've told them that it's i would prefer to keep it that way but i like to think i do this show in in a kind of fear that my mom might be listening i have a sneaking suspicion she might listen to every episode (laughs) it's hard it's hard to tell sometimes mom if you're listening don't turn it off turn this one off (laughs) um but anyways uh yeah you were on for a rom-com last time and now we're kind of back in rom-com territory although many decades earlier for this one from 1972 we're talking about the heartbreak kid directed by elaine may written by neil simon based on a short story by bruce j friedman do you have a extensive history with this movie this is one i think it's in your letterboxed top four maybe what or it was at one point yeah no it definitely still is um 
I don't have a long history with this movie at all. I, I'd never watched, um, like, a, a Elaine May-directed movie until I read the, the Mike Nichols biography last year and got really curious about Elaine May as a, as a figure and just, like, obsessively watched all her movies. So this was my third time watching this movie this year. <laughs> um, yeah, I really love this movie. Um, I, yeah, I'd never seen a, an Elaine May directed movie until recently, but I, um, for some reason my mom let us watch The Birdcage a lot when we were kids, mm-hmm. which she, she wrote. So I realized I do have a bit of a, a longstanding, um, appreciation for, uh, Elaine May's sense of humor and her kind of sensibility, but... Yeah, I'm like a I'm a new convert, but she's absolutely one of my favorite directors. She's definitely someone I think and I've only I've seen this one and I've seen Ishtar and then I haven't seen her other two. But just being online, she's definitely like a favorite of film Twitter and like someone who's totally. gotten a big cult boost <clears throat> kind of in this late stage of her life for someone who hasn't made a movie in 35 years or something at this point. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have the richest history with this movie either. This was one that I watched for the first time last summer. Um, I did go see the 2008 Fairly Brothers remake uh, of this film in theaters with my parents and my brother, uh, which I know you said you hadn't seen that one. And I did a Fairly Brothers mm-hmm. movie last week, but a, a very, a very filthy, raunchy kind of take on this same material a very different movie but this one i remember when i watched it last summer it just it it feels so fresh even for now it's a 50 year old movie it it feels very transitional to me between a 60s it feels like the 60s hangover into the 70s that it's not quite the new hollywood yet but it's still Mm -hmm. what is becoming that and sort of the transition from the Neil Simon odd couple, much more straight material that you were getting in the 60s, that now it's going into this darker, recontextualized place. Very, We're getting heady right off the top on this one, I feel. <laughs> For what's yeah. a very funny rom-com. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so light on the surface, but I think there's, yeah, there's a lot going on underneath the, yeah doesn't compare to like other neil simon like uh barefoot in the park or something that was only five years before this but is so light and stupid and uh sorry (laughs) i don't know who i'm apologizing for or to robert redford i guess um neil simon has been dead for at least five years now so i think we can start really but i I actually shit on his legacy i think he's great i just think like stuff like barefoot in the park is so it's so typical of the kind of like 60s comedy that's quite like, I think, sexless and doesn't have a whole lot to say versus I just think there's so much like cynicism and darkness bubbling under the surface of this. But that might also just be um, what Elaine May is bringing to it. And the fact that this is an adaptation of someone else's material and not strictly just yeah. a Simon premise, because like... I agree with you, kind of sexless, even though <laughs> there's an argument to be made that there's some sex undertones to the odd couple, to those two roommates. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like that kind of, yeah, his his work in the 60s, and I actually had it um, when I looked back at my letterboxed review of this movie from last summer, 
that like Neil Simon, he's so his screenplays are so funny and the movies that he wrote scripts for, he really does have a great style, but in his earlier, like those 1960s works, it's just like, it feels like AI generated pleasant comedy. It, it's the most, yeah, toothless yeah. middle of the road. <laughs> you can see what, like how he would make such a name for himself doing that kind of stuff but in the 70s i think we're getting more he's maturing as a writer and that's you know certainly helping out a movie like this yeah yeah i guess like neil simon and like with all the uh adaptations of like his his work like yeah barefoot in the park and the odd couple and stuff it was kind of like i think the start of like exporting like the kind of new york jewish theater comedy sensibility to like a broader audience and then that was just like that uh like jewish comedy i think really like exploded and became the popular comedy mode in like the 70s with like mostly woody allen but definitely elaine may too was a big like kind of exporter of that like comedy sensibility to a broader audience which i realized recently like all my top four my like favorite films on like my little letterbox i'm like these are all just like jewish romantic comedies <laughs> from like the 70s, 60s and 70s so i don't know what that says about me but <laughs> oh, it means that you're yeah you have a taste they're of a group and yeah th- like these are definitely for the aesthetics of them the kind of movies that i gravitate towards as well we should talk about the premise i suppose a little bit do you want to give a little summary to the people who might not know yeah I mean, it's a pretty straightforward plot. Um, This uh, man goes on his honeymoon with his very Jewish, apparently very, like, gross um, or weird and annoying wife. He meets a beautiful blonde shiksa on the beach and, uh, what, like, three days into his honeymoon decides to uh, get a divorce and goes to Minnesota to pursue the beautiful blonde and then it ends with him marrying her <laughs> and seemingly it ends uh not unlike the graduate a little bit where he's kind of he's yes. got what he wanted but it, is he happier now is this any better for him is he you know looking down the barrel of just like whatever his next crisis is gonna be um yeah very much <laughs> yeah like it is like you said like a very it's a straightforward premise and it has a in this movie more so than the remake and i guess it's because of the era it's pretty clear in this movie that he rushes into this marriage the uh, lenny cantrell character played by charles groden he rushes into this marriage with this 21 year old um lila played by Jeannie berlin who is elaine may's daughter in real life he rushes into this marriage with her because she's a virgin and she's keeping it for marriage and Mm -hmm. they make that pretty abundantly clear and then he jumps into this marriage has i guess what you might call buyer's remorse upon consummating the relationship and then increasingly this woman just becomes kind of a thorn in his side and he becomes (laughs) increasingly you know the things that you don't learn about someone in the first six weeks of knowing them (laughs) those things start to come out and the blossoming new marriage starts to be unfolding a little bit 
at the same time that this woman Kelly, played by Sybil Shepherd in one of her early film roles, comes into his life as sort of an angelic figure and offers this mm-hmm. new opportunity for him, a new leaf, uh, one might say. <laughs> and then and then that's where the movie uh, goes from there with her father, played by Eddie Albert, I believe from the TV show Green Acres, I think is what he was famous for prior to this. The three central performances in this movie are fantastic. I mean, I, I think Charles Grodin is so unbelievably funny like he just has like it's i don't know it's like it's never quite what i would expect like a the tone to be or like just like the the line reads are just incredibly funny and the for yeah for a guy who's so dry and who is so like serious and prickish he's so offbeat and off kilter that yeah like he is he's almost got the unpredictability or the wildness behind the eyes of like what we'd later get in like michael keaton like he's just Mm. he's got this like coiled spring kind of energy where like you're not sure if this guy's gonna blow up or something but he's always kind of keeping it wrapped up a little bit and his blankness in his face and his ability to be such a transparently like full of shit dishonest kind of guy but you can see that he's really not even seeing the good of it but just seeing that it's the necessary purpose of what he has to get done yeah yeah he's kind of machiavellian <laughs> the character yeah um and charles Grodin, but only i think for he, love <laughs> only yeah he died a year or two ago early on in the Mm -hmm. pandemic era um and i yeah i've been revisiting there's a plethora if anyone out there is interested and hasn't seen them he would go on talk shows and specifically for many like decades on david letterman and basically be in character as this kind of like smug asshole type guy and it's and it's like between two ferns or Jiminy Glick or any of those like scripted fake interview shows, but it's the guest who's just being an asshole to the host for no reason. <laughs> and it's so funny because like Letterman will play along and like they get each other and it's very funny, but like some of the best unscripted cringe comedy that you can ever expect to see on late night TV. And there's just like hours of it on YouTube. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, the the cringe comedy of of the film is something that really sticks out to me and like um the time I watched it before like the last time I watched it before I watched it this week was um my friend and I watched it on Valentine's Day cuz he had never seen it. Mm-hmm. And I was like this is perfect he he was like recently single. I'm like this is going to be the perfect cynical romantic comedy to watch on Valentine's Day. Um and and my friend pointed out something that I hadn't initially thought but like he commented on how like Seinfeldian the the humor is and like the kind of at different moments like like the Charles Grodin character he kind of has like it seems like something that like Jerry would say or like or like something that uh George Costanza would say like he just has this kind of like it's the same kind of humor that yeah I think Seinfeld kind of like perfected and made like a real dominant I think form in like the 90s and then like curb kind of continued on with that like so it's kind of you can see this kind of like 
lineage, I guess, of of yeah, comedy. I completely agree. I, I thought the exact same thing watching this movie. And one of the notes that I took down of time and cream, that the only things that'll make things better are time and cream. Those kinds of jokes and like the humor of just like repetition of weird phrases or like little when he's telling her that she's going to puff up like a basketball and they're, yeah. I'm not going to puff, you're going to puff up. Those things, yeah, I think because the humor is so organic out of like interaction between people and it's that the conversation is realistic and it's idiosyncrasy and like the weird, like the stilted kind of like off kilter nature of it as opposed to it being big broad punchlines and quippy like Chandler Bing zinging on his friends all the time it's not clever yeah. comedy coming out of people making fun of each other it's organic human observational comedy played out in this really relatable and entirely uncomfortable premise that you're launched into within like three minutes of this movie starting Mm-hmm. It gets it gets such a quick start to it. And I realized on this viewing, because both times I watched this, I watched it for free on YouTube. I don't know how you watch it. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any other way to watch it. And both times you turn it on and I think that it's like starting a bit into it or it's like had the beginning cut off because you get that with lots of movies mm-hmm. when they're in full on YouTube. But this movie just starts right into it and the action of it and then you get the credits like oh the movie that just begins this way it doesn't even have like a studio logo up top or anything it just begins and you get the Mm -hmm. entire setup of the premise of he meets this woman he's a bachelor he has a sporting goods store you get all this information and context right up top and then three and a half minutes in almost they're on their honeymoon and this movie's like kicked off into what it's gonna be yeah yeah i like how fast it just like cuts to the wedding um i kind of like i wondered how um like the way that it it frames it it's kind of like he just went out to the bar one time and meets he meets lila immediately and i was kind of uh, I thought it was interesting that it just shows him meeting her. It doesn't show him like going out every weekend trying to meet girls. I'm like, kind of like, did he just marry the first girl he met at the bar? <laughs> like, it kind of gives you that impression. Yeah, we don't get the like looking for Mr. Good Bar. Like, yeah, <laughs> kind of, we don't get that sort of take on this like single guy in the city trying to meet somebody. Yeah, he does. He, you get the impression that he met someone even before they get married when they're in bed together and she's saying that she's waiting for marriage you get the idea that he he's not into her but he's pushing for what he wants it's not even really about that he likes her it's okay if i have to marry you then that's what i'll do but he's just kind of like in pursuit of end goals Mm -hmm. And then when he gets what he wants and he's unfulfilled, that's when it's time to redirect and think of what the next thing is going to be. We should talk about the Jeannie Berlin performance in this. So yeah, like I said, she's Elaine May's daughter. And Elaine May, I think only like 17 when she had her maybe. So was not very old when she was directing her daughter in this movie. Um, I think that must have been kind of uncomfortable, but I also think that that must have come out in why she's such a 
authentically uncomfortable character for you to imagine being married to. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like um the yeah, the the parallels to the graduate are so obvious, like and which you already mentioned and I was just th- thinking so much like how um Mike Nichols was clearly like projecting a lot of stuff on to Dustin Hoffman and like working things out in his own life through that film. And I was just thinking like how much is Elaine May kind of projecting and seeing herself in the movie as the Jeannie Berlin character, which is really interesting because you would it's kind of the opposite of what you would expect the director to, to put her to cast her own child who looks remarkably like her in the role of like the unlikable wife instead of the beautiful other woman which i think is really compelling and it's like okay sometimes nepotism is good when the the casting is amazing and i think Jeannie berlin is a really uh like authentic um actor and really really funny (laughs) in a very natural way she is and she like her performance is very funny her character is very real and like she does you know some of the silly comedy of like when she has food all over her face and like she can make the laughs come out of that but what i found i think on both viewings of this movie and i won't get hung up on comparing this movie to the remake a bunch of times over but in that one they play it so much more that this um lila character that he does marry at the beginning of the movie is so insane and unlikable and a psycho and a nymphomaniac and it's all pushed to like the most extreme angle possible before you even meet the kelly character whereas Mm. in this movie they get married and it's just kind of yeah she's sort of not a great singer and she kind of is indecisive ordering in a restaurant it's just little tiny things that are bubbling up and they're not being played huge for like that Charles Grodin's got like steam shooting out of his ears every second. You're just sitting there for prolonged scenes where she's being sort of difficult or being maybe sort of gross from time to time. But it doesn't set in what he's missing out on, quote unquote, until the Sybil Shepherd Kelly character enters and she's bathed in this like bright sunlight behind her that she really does have this like angelic glow when she first comes into it and you just get the idea that oh yeah this guy you know he doesn't want to be with his wife at all that's not that's not the person he's interested in whatsoever Mm -hmm. and then i don't think it this movie makes an effort to sympathize the charles groden character either to make you really root for him and what he's doing you're stuck with him he's the protagonist but he's not meant to be likable i don't think this movie believes that he's a hero and i think the ending would certainly play that out as well yeah definitely not yeah yeah sybil shepherd is um this was what like maybe her second or third movie i think before this she had the last picture show but this is many years before taxi driver yeah Yeah. definitely like very early for her i think like like people back then like thought she was just like so a horrible actor which i can't wrap my brain around i think she's really funny in the way that she delivers lines and she just has this kind of like beautiful uh, yeah i don't know she has she's like very lively in a way i'm trying i'm like thinking of other 
Because there are so many women in films of this era who, yeah, they could just be, like, playing someone who's beautiful and stupid, and it's okay if they're, they're like, vacant behind the eyes a little bit. Um, but she doesn't have that. I think she's really, like, spirited and funny. And the way she said, like, when they meet in the bar and she says, thanks for the nut, is just, like, re- she has an, a fantastic delivery. It's not, it's not quite... She's not, like, a comedic genius, I think, the way Charles Grodin is, but I think she has, like, a real uh, funny, funny way of delivering lines, and she's, like, very spirited in a way that's um, very magnetic. She's not contented to take just a small, like, regular part and not bring something of her own to it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, other actresses who, you know, be third build in a rom-com in this era... They may not have so much on the page to do, and then it just doesn't come across as a good performance. But while this is a good character as well, yeah, she really is bringing something to it and putting a Sybil Shepherd stamp on it that when I remember this movie, I remember that it's her. It's not a hazy thing of, okay, and who is the, you know, the other person in that movie? It's like the three leads are very, I think, crucial to the success of this one. And because really, mm-hmm. there's hardly anyone else. There is the Eddie Albert character, but then there's almost no other movie stars, or there are no other movie stars in this movie. No one I recognize really, except the yeah. mother from uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, Doris Roberts, is right, in the wedding scene at the beginning and doesn't even have lines in this movie. I don't think. Yeah, like most of the other people are kind of just like a, a nameless part of the crowd. You know, like their guests at the wedding or they're like uh the other students at kelly's college or like yeah it's the all the other characters are almost like a a chorus or like you know the other people on the beach like it's crowded with people but it feels very intimate because there's really only these like four characters that have any anything to do or say at all I was actually just thinking the same thing that it's got for something written by Neil Simon, such a play-like quality where it's, yeah, you got a few actors, but then everyone else could be people doing quick changes and they come back out wearing a different costume. And it's okay, now I'm playing a waiter in a restaurant for this five minutes, but I'll come back later and I'll be a, you know, jockish guy on a college campus. The rest of the cast, and I think this is something that we've missed out or that we don't, um, I think you and I both have an affection for 70s Hollywood and for that era and that they don't make them like they used to and all those kinds of cliches. But movies nowadays, they're not populated with just like faceless, nameless, bit part actors like this. I feel like everything has always got to be so crammed with recognizable faces who you're going to know what their other work is and movies like this that just have random people to make your movie stars or your leads kind of just pop out to the front a little bit more. You just don't get these Mm -hmm. kinds of movies anymore. No, definitely not. Actually, my first two reviews on Letterboxd of this movie both say at the end, they don't make them like this anymore. And I didn't even realize I'd done it both times until I reread them. And I was like, okay, shut up, you annoying bitch. Um, it's like uh, you catch yeah, yourself saying yeah. things like that, and yeah. it's like I'm like a fucking cliche, but it's like it's true, goddamn it. It's true. It's not, <laughs> it's not me. The pictures got small, like it. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's funny. Like the it it does have like the play essence, but it's not like I don't know why I'm picking on Barefoot in the Park so much. It's really a fine movie, but 
that movie, like, you watch it and it just, like, immediately you know it's a play because the the camera work is so boring and the sets are so boring and so stationary. And the the camera work in this is actually, like, has really funny, like, like the, the way the camera zooms at certain points to, like, show the full room or zooms out from um, Lenny to show Lila in bed with, you know, covered in cream or whatever, like, the the camera work in this is really dynamic and and funny yeah there's the shot the one that really blew me away um when i was watching it this morning is when they're arriving um getting into miami beach there's a pan over to a hotel to a very interestingly designed hotel and then the camera tilts over and the way it Mm -hmm. pans and then tilts and it just kind of this movie was shot by Owen Roisman, who is still alive to this day uh, in his, I think, late 80s at this point, but who also shot um, lots of different things. He shot The Exorcist the following year. He shot wow. The French Connection the year before this. In the 90s, he did Wyatt Earp, and then he also did uh, the first Adams Family movie, which I was watching that not long ago, and that's amazingly shot as well well i guess the exorcist you know this guy's done lots of great work but yeah this one's definitely one of them as well and yeah just the way the lighting and i think some of the lovemaking scenes is just very <laughs> like the blue room kind of thing it looks like a tony scott movie almost like yeah but in a very or like yeah oh sorry the the scene at the cabin like later in the movie where they're kind of just lit by firelight is like yeah it just looks it looks incredible. This movie it it felt to me like like it was rigorously anti-television in a way. I'm not sure if that's the way to put it, but like this movie accentuates such a divide between what comedy in a movie was like in the late 60s, early 70s versus what would be popular on television, really like canned laughter, underscoring the jokes, reminding you of what is funny about it. You could watch this movie and not know it was a comedy, or you could show it to a kid and not explain that it's supposed to be funny, and they might just get sucked into the story of it and just watch it for what it is, because it's not playing it out and telling you Charles Grodin isn't winking at the camera and doing broad shtick to let you know when he's supposed to be funny. He's just funny mm-hmm. on his wavelength and you have to tune into it. Yeah, yeah. Like, when I when I showed this movie to my friend, um, like, for, like, two months after, I was, I kept being, like, every time I brought it up, I'm like, did you like the movie? Like, I couldn't quite tell because he was, like, he was so invested in it. He was, like, frustrated with the character and, like, screaming and stuff <laughs> when we were watching it. And I think it is because it's, like, the the comedy is so idiosyncratic. And if you're not, like, tuned into that kind of mode of humor, you're, it's just not going to click for you. And you won't... Like, the first time I watched it, this is, like, one of... To me, one of the funniest movies I've ever watched. Like, I, I laugh so hard every time I watch this. I was guffawing at the screen today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just like, like, at a lot of the times, like, it is funny because it's like so shocking, like how, how easily, like, once he starts making excuses to leave Lila in the hotel room and go see Kelly, he, he, he tells lies so effortlessly. Like, he just like makes up like names 
on the fly of like you could call call this police off call patrolman greer or whatever it was like he just like lies at the drop of the hat and i think it's so funny just how the lies like roll out of him but it's also deeply uncomfortable (laughs) because it's horrible (laughs) well that's the thing and like not unlike the movie that we had last week on this show it's yeah it's it's played within the trappings of like a romantic comedy but it's about a guy who's such a complete monster like there's nothing redeemable and that's actually such a big trope um what's the movie from the 90s i'm thinking of while you were sleeping like there's Mm. so many romantic comedies that play just sociopathic behavior as being sort of like relatable but i think that's what the that's what makes for a good biting romantic comedy is to take realistic feelings or you know jealousies and things that are, you know, you can't do this, you know, I get you're angry about a breakup, or I get you feel this way in this relationship, but there's things you can't do in real life. And then these movies are the kinds of cringe explorations of pushing, you know, every conversation you hope you never have in your life, you get to see people having it in this movie. Yeah, I think that's like why, uh, or when one of many reasons why I really enjoy Woody Allen's films so much is because they're really about like him and his own like um like romantic failings and stuff like I especially think of of Manhattan and how it exposes like everything that's wrong with him and you have this like really like quite despicable person at the heart of this movie and it's not really romantic in any way and you're not even really rooting for him to end up with Diane Keaton you're just like you're like man I hope this guy figures his shit out and of course he doesn't um, but that's also why it's, like, so, so enjoyable. Yeah, it is, like, just this, like, frustrating, infuriating exploration of, like, a certain kind of masculinity um, that I think, yeah. This movie also, I think, is is kind of poking at the same bear in a maybe less obvious way. I think so. I think also uh, one of the other movies that Owen Roisman shot this same year, I think, was uh, Play It Again, Sam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was 72. Yeah. And so... Yeah, that's... Yeah, <laughs> very much this. <laughs> and that's that's an extreme... That's a movie that feels like a play on film and has that yeah. exact same trappings of like, God, what's this? I, I'm watching a movie, but there's something broken about it or it's like... <laughs> Someone's got to send this movie back. Like it's it's defective. There's just like something yeah. that feels, and that's to be fair, that's directed by Herbert Ross. That's not a Woody Allen directed movie. Yeah. But for this movie to be 1972, it feels, you know, for how much um, film history and kind of like New Hollywood history um, goes over that Annie Hall and then Manhattan later on as being like where Woody Allen really matured into the great filmmaker that he became known to be after doing his like early funny comedies for this movie to be five years earlier. This is so much, this is light years ahead of bananas of play it again, Sam, take the money and run the stuff that Woody Allen was directing in this era. Like Elaine may beat him to that realistic grounded Seinfeldian 
approach to relationship comedy she's already there with it fully developed Mm -hmm. half a decade before woody allen ever got there yeah yeah that's that's a really good point and yeah it's yeah i don't have anything to add i think that's a that's a really great point Um, well and i guess neil simon in writing this thought diane keaton would be good for the kelly character sybil shepherd but hmm. elaine may felt there wouldn't be a strong enough sort of like jewish shiksa contrast between diane keaton and Jeannie berlin two brunettes maybe i guess it wouldn't be obvious enough to viewers actually uh, i i feel like i always uh have to connect everything to woody allen but i did have another i do too that's exactly it (laughs) (laughs) that's Um, all i do But it, it was, it's later in the movie, but it's one of my favorite scenes when he eats dinner with Kelly's family in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I, it's funny that the Diane Keaton connection, because that scene and how like Midwestern and like uh, Norman Rockwell, the family is, made me think so much of the scene in Annie Hall where they eat like a Easter dinner or something at, at Annie's house in, in Wisconsin. It was like, like obviously, uh, in Annie Hall, he's kind of doing like a a commentary on it, and and in the Heartbreak Kid, you're just sitting with the discomfort of it. But those scenes felt very connected to me, like the kind of this like Jewish intruder on like the perfect Midwestern family. Yeah, and actually, what I had in my notes here too is that um, when they're still in Florida and they're at the nightclub watching kind of like the shitty comic on stage performing. That's basically, like, the guy from Annie Hall that Woody's meeting with to, like, pitch jokes to him. Like, that kind of hack Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, these are, yeah, and again, these are, like, characters that are coming from a very real world. These are representations of what now, 50 years later, we can understand these really were, like, real people. <laughs> like, these kind of types of guys must have been, like, a dime a dozen, these bad nightclub comics that we now have immortalized in scenes like this. Yeah, yeah, you can really see how, um, yeah, Elaine May and Woody Allen are coming from so many of the same worlds of, like, comedy and and New York in the same era and stuff. And um, I think articulating the discomfort with, like, a more, like, waspy culture in, like, similar but i think they both they have they both have really distinct voices even though they're talking about a lot of the same uh uh modern problems i think and and even though woody allen has had you know 50 features and uh you know 60 year career to be making many 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 movies that tackle similar subject matter over and over again elaine may had four movies didn't get as many opportunities when she had financial disappointments that Woody Allen has had. And this movie, Mm -hmm. to be her second, she only had two movies in the 70s, one movie in the 80s, or three movies in the 70s and and one in the 80s. So yeah, I've seen this one and I've seen Ishtar. I would be interested to know what you think about Ishtar a little bit because... Yeah. You I love mean, Warren Beatty. I, I you know, love I, Warren Beatty. <laughs> I, love I, I really Hoffman. love Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Me too took a little bit of the shine off that, but it also just kind of like, that's when you like, you take something, you like take it off like the high shelf and you put it on like the like other shelf. 
you take the dvd from your like prestige like show off shelf and you put it on the one in the basement that kind of thing (laughs) i still like dustin hoffman i still like his performances i should say yeah yeah i think i think he's fantastic and maybe that he's fantastic because he also has like a I, I don't think I don't think he's evil, but <laughs> uh, no, that's his, the thing, uh, though. It's like you yeah, you learn he's more very about complicated. him. <laughs> you learn more about him. It makes the performances more interesting. Yeah, that's any artist. It's you, their biography informs the work. You don't separate the artist from the art. You take it into consideration, and it informs how you're able to consume the art. Yeah, not to get distracted. Yeah, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are two of like definitely like my guys. Like probably top five. Um, movie stars that I'll watch literally anything that they're in um I think the beginning of Ishtar is like very funny it's Um, really funny like that opening it's incredible like it's it's their 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 performances the way that um Elaine May pokes fun at kind of like flip kind of flips their both like their public images like it's kind of like a meta joke like I always laugh thinking about the part where Warren Beatty is like oh I can't get laid I'm not like you Dustin Hoffman yeah. like obviously Dustin Hoffman doesn't have problems getting pussy but uh it, it's just it's such a funny like people don't like that about the movie which I think is very weird because it's so blatantly a joke on on Warren Beatty's whole thing and obviously how like un, unimpeachably handsome he is so I I think it's it's very funny and it really falls apart obviously um but it has such a admirable spirit to me and i think has something interesting and probably worthwhile to say about like american interventionism which is a really weird thing for a comedy to tackle but i i'm i'm an ishtar defender at the end of the day ishtar defender that would be like a good twitter uh like handle kind of name thing i can see that becoming something popular um yeah i think i i think i agree with basically everything you said there the beginning of ishtar very very funny and then it you can see why it has a reputation as being like a bloated Mm -hmm. you know hollywood production turned disaster i think yeah warren Beatty. i'm i'm a little less favorable to he i do i like some of the movies he's in he's you can't not have him be like a cheese dog. He's just got some yeah. kind of, he's so corny or just like kind of, I was watching the parallax view recently, which I hadn't seen. And like, even in this like tense movie, he's just got this breezy. I remember Will Sloan on important cinema club called him Chevy chase ask once. And I think that sums it up totally. He's got this like kind of breezy. He's not, too concerned either way what's going on like he's kind of just like sort of like what a matthew mcconaughey has nowadays yeah i think they also said this on important cinema club but like even when warren Beatty is playing someone like who should be smart like like john reed and rads he's he's just such a dumb guy yeah (laughs) fundamentally he's playing an idiot in absolutely everything He's too pretty to know what it's like to encounter difficulties in the world. Like he's too, it's just an alien thing for him. So that's like, anytime a role requires that of him, it's like, that's his kryptonite as an actor. That's like what he can't overcome. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I think I think people try to draw like a, a through line through Elaine May's work that it's like, oh, it's always about like these like duos who are kind of like weirdly codependent. I think especially in like Mikey and Nikki. Um and they're always trying to like connect that to um like her start in like Nichols and May and like becoming famous more as part of a duo than as an individual. And I don't I think that's kind of like just trying to people trying to make sense of her like kind of disparate career but I think she has kind of always has a the I think the real connective tissue in all of her films is more of like a a criticism of like like the broader American project and these different um ways like she I think she's like actually a really good filmmaker about like masculinity and like different types of masculinity and how people try to kind of like contort themselves into um, like a more American masculinity. Like I think like the the really exciting like beating heart in this film is is the kind of the way that Lenny tries to fit into this Midwestern waspy culture is like I think trying to make a point of how Jewish people have tried to or have successfully, and definitely in Hollywood, successfully, you know, changed their names and and made themselves more like the Wasps and kind of contorted themselves to fit into Christian America, you know, making Hanukkah a bigger deal than it actually is, and kind of just, like, this assimilation that, like, Jewish people ha- were part of sure. in, like, the 20th century in America, and I think that's, like, a... Maybe that's a bit of a stretch to to read that onto this movie, but I, I think it's, it's there, and I think, it's not really like a comment for or against it, but, um, I think it's just pointing out this kind of way that that people try to to fit into, and make sense of like their own otherness, which I think is why I just really resonate with these kind of, like, Jewish comedies that are so much about being just, like, slightly out of touch with everyone else, just being a little a little different, a little other. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, that was a very long <laughs> No, that's, that's all. That's good, and I also, I would be interested to know if you ever found yourself with two hours. It's kind of a long movie, I think, but uh, if you ever found yourself curious to watch the remake of this movie with... Um, Ben Stiller and Malin Ackerman um, that that movie is completely even though Ben Stiller with like Meet the Parents um, specifically did that sort of Annie Hall like Jewish guy mm-hmm. with a you know blonde haired fiance character and you know trying to fit in with a completely different family background dynamic even though he's got that in that movie the remake of this film completely takes that jewish identity out of it and Mm. doesn't even really substitute it with anything it's just that ben stiller is kind of a self-centered narcissistic pussy and her family are just like real americans and are just like Mm. just normal like danny mcbride is a brother character which doesn't Mm. exist in this movie but yeah, as opposed to having a overbearing father, which the Kelly character has in this one, it's more strongly a brother character played by Danny McBride. 
in the remake but to to similar sort of effect and yeah like that movie it it's not that it's bad i actually kind of think it's sort of funny but it is definitely you realize how much of this movie and its success comes from the nuances of the performances the like i had the said the time and cream thing earlier or another line that i took down that made me laugh so much um eddie albert at one point asks the charles groden character if he's laying his cards on the table and he says i'm just sort of shuffling right now just (laughs) those like little lines and the little the sincerity behind the delivery of them that's what makes this movie pop and that's what makes it so funny not big gross out over the top humor set pieces like the Farrelly brothers do so that remake i don't think is a successful marriage of the two sensibilities and i think certainly 50 years out this is the movie that deserves to be remembered and talked about compared to the remake yeah well yeah and i feel like the the humor in this is probably like has more longevity like people don't really there aren't very many movies doing like gross out kind of humor anymore i think that's like a bit more frozen in time maybe not yeah not shoehorning the gross out humor into what otherwise would be a normal studio comedy now we have our gross out humor so specialized to places like uh eric andre and like the jackass universe you know we know where to get our gross outs and we're not trying to find ways to put those into like cameron diaz drew barrymore romantic comedies anymore which yeah that was that the 90s people really loved gross out humor like american pie yeah yeah it was it was the clinton era we were getting freaky with it i think is like maybe (laughs) Right? Like, the Cold War is over. It's, like, a new sexual liberation. Yeah, like, the the the, the opportunity to laugh at sex and find it gross rather than, like, intriguing and mysterious and, and dark the way the, maybe the 80s. Yeah, it's less of the sex thriller and more of the sex comedy by the end of the 90s, I feel like. And, yeah, now everything is just so sexless and, like, mm-hmm. it's... You can't have genuine sexuality in basically anything because it's too much for people to handle. Yeah, I think, like, some of the, the funny, the humor, like, that the father has, too. Like, I love how he he always calls um, Lenny, like, a newlywed. He's like, I don't hand out my daughter to newlyweds, which doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense outside of the context of this movie. But when he says it, it's really funny. And makes perfect sense. <laughs> well, it's so yeah, it's so funny because he makes he plays it out like it's a, a rule, like an unwritten, unspoken rule he's always had for himself, but he's never had to break glass in case of use, and actually like put that into action. It's like never thought it would come to this, but no, like I'm not letting my daughter off with a newlywed. Yeah, this isn't something I'm accepting. What do you think of the score in this movie? I I think that it's really good but it also makes this movie feel five to seven years older than it actually is yeah it is it's kind of like old-fashioned it makes me think more of it's maybe the one thing that's hinting at this is a comedy like it's it's almost sitcom-esque and it's a little bit like the it sounds kind of sentimental i think which is kind of fun yeah it's got very burt Bacharach vibes although on wikipedia it says like in uh part of the production history 
it refers to Burt Backrack working on the movie, but he's not in the credits, and so I think that's just uh, sticky fingers typing away on Wikipedia. I don't think that's actually correct, but it does sound derivative of that kind of style. It reminded me also of the music, <clears throat> specifically in like the early Woody Allen movies, like Bananas mm. and Take the Money and Run. Yeah, very light, underscoring the comedy and letting you feel moments of kind of lightness in between scenes that typically don't have music underneath them and are just kind of played to an uncomfortable pin drop silence. So I think that the contrast between the two, that that's kind of a curb your enthusiasm type thing as well. Like the music's mm-hmm. kind of goofy, kind of keeps things breezing along. But then when the scenes actually happen, it kind of just leaves you like with your heart pounding and you can't hear anything else. I mentioned it before, but I think like the the scene at at dinner with the family is my favorite scene in the movie. And I think like the speech that he makes about how like the food is honest and I'll, I'll misquote it, but something about like there's uh, there's no insincerity in these potatoes. I yeah, think is one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of I I think that's just one of the funniest scenes in any movie ever and it's just like hilarious on its face but i also like how it's kind of poking a hole in this like silly glamorizing of like the midwest and how he's constantly talking about like i'd like to get back to the land and it's like we should put we should put things back into this country rather than taking it out like his kind of trying to relate to the midwestern sensibility is actually just like exposing how detached it is from reality (laughs) Well, and he's there now. He doesn't like it. He's trying to talk himself into liking it by, like, bullshitting himself in that scene, I feel, as well. Like, you see him kind of spinning his wheels. And then that paired with the scene afterwards where the Eddie Albert father character is like, I, you know, I heard every word you said, and I was very impressed. Like, I've never heard such a crock of horse shit in my life. And that it, like... And every, you know, this whole movie... Charles Grodin is so transparently just this, like, self-serving, you know, yeah, lying through his teeth, shows no remorse for any of it. And the dressing down that he gets from Eddie Albert, I think, is such a great cap on the dinner scene. I think my favorite scene is the other dinner scene where he tells Jeannie Berlin that he's divorcing her in the restaurant full of people. That, to me... When he, I, I forget what his line is where he says, I want out or that I'm done, whatever his, to really put the button on it. Because at first, as he's trying to explain it, she thinks that he just has some kind of horrible illness, which just makes him angrier, the misunderstanding of it. She's like, oh my God, you're dying? He's like, no, I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> it, um, yeah, oh my God, I love this movie. And then the, 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 the pecan pie i got super excited and i hopped to my computer because i i could have sworn that this actor playing the pecan pie waiter was uh dennis dugan who in addition to some 70s bit acting went on to become the director of many many adam sandler movies and i could have swore this was dugan but it wasn't him it was just some other guy but i was so my my heart leapt out of my chest on this viewing thinking it could possibly be him i think it's funny too like when he's like like uh, just abandoning Lila, who's obviously kind of from his own, like a similar background. Maybe shares like she. I think she really represents like. Obviously, she's like I'm waiting till marriage. All this stuff. She represents a kind of 
tradition. And then Kelly is like somewhat more modern, but obviously Minnesota and the Midwest and her family represents just a totally other tradition. And he's just like jumping headfirst into this other tradition and this um, romanticized idea of the Midwest. And I, I, yeah, I just think it, it shows how like, he's just like very unmoored and like longing for tradition in this kind of weird way that almost seems a bit regressive. Or not regressive, but I think it's just like, it, no, I eh, I take that back. It's not regressive. It's it's just like kind of outside of this perceived, I think, cultural tension between like tradition and progress. How there's this person in the modern world just like trying to cling to like some tradition to make sense of it, and then Kelly, I think, is also doing that because why else would she marry him? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I'm mostly through my notes here. Do you have closing thoughts? Anything else that you want to make mention of? Um, I I had written down one of my other f- very favorite lines from this movie is at uh, Kelly and Lenny's like wedding reception when he's uh, schmoozing with the the wedding guests who are all like like wealthy Republican <laughs> Midwesterners. Yeah. And and he someone says there's a lot of money in tear gas. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of which also made me think a lot of the graduate you know plastics that but there's a lot of money in tear gas is way funnier <laughs> and yeah, maybe more yeah. like modern resonance than plastics but that's that line always sticks out to me as as really funny and same when he's talking to the kids at the um at the wedding reception and kind of talking to them like adults and you can kind of see how he's like oh, i'm I'm basically a kid. I'm 10. I don't know what I'm doing. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the tear gas line I laughed out loud at, and it feels... Yeah, I was also reminded of the plastics line, but this feels like more of the... Like a line you'd hear in Annie Hall, like more screaming a joke out at you. It's more biting. Yeah, more biting than the rest of the humor, which I guess it makes sense to save that kind of big laugh for the end of the movie, because it then does end just kind of on... Yeah, just sort of like a bum off note. I was reading, I guess there it, there was some ending filmed for this movie where he is maybe kind of set up that he's on his honeymoon with Kelly and you get the idea that this same thing is going to play out once again and it ends on a laugh of that note. But I think this downbeat, like this ending is super 70s, like extremely, and like it ends like the conversation or something, just kind of that awful note and then the movie is over or the graduate as we said before but i think really works and i think puts a nice button of finality onto the story it kind of just abruptly starts it abruptly ends kind of a distinct style for this movie yeah it's i i think i appreciate the anti-climax more and you you get like the sense that even if because he does say actually we should come back here on our honeymoon which is insane um yeah I think the the way it leaves it open but also tells you exactly what situation this character is continuing to be in is very effective on its own and it doesn't need that more obvious laugh because yeah you just you you see it and you yeah exactly like the graduate you you see the look on their faces and you just understand that feeling even if you've obviously never been in the same situation you spiritually have and you can kind of feel it um which i think is what makes this movie still very resonant aside from like the the sense of sense of humor 
I think the mm-hmm. feeling of like uh, having no idea what you're doing <laughs> and being very unmoored from any tradition or anything and all of that makes it feel like still very modern, um, which is why I think The Graduate is also still a really great movie. The Graduate, I have not seen in a long time. I saw it on Turner Classic Movies a decade ago, maybe, and I have not gone back and revisited that one, which I really should. I like. Um, you should. I should. Maybe I'll. Uh, is that. Is, mm, where can I find that to watch it? I, guess I, I think it's just... on Netflix. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, for, got, it's like one of like afternoon. three good movies <laughs> on Netflix. No, I got my afternoon sorted out for me. Um, yeah, n- normally I do, I like to do the box office mojo for the movies that we cover on this show, but I think possibly this might be, it's older than the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This might be the oldest movie we've ever covered on the show. So, you know, the box office paleontology doesn't quite go back that far, but I did find that in December of 1972, when this movie came out, it was a pre-Christmas release, December 17th, 1972. This would be like a, a nice Christmas sort of movie. I can see that. This would be a good movie for Jewish families to go to on Christmas Day. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Counter-programming. Um, but this was beaten out at the box office by uh, the Poseidon Adventure was the big top at the box office that month. So if anyone listening was remembers the era, if you remember seeing the Poseidon Adventure, it was because you were not seeing the Heartbreak Kid. All your listeners who were alive then. Yeah, another movie that was remade in like 2008. Oh, true. To, for no one to remember it. Um, yeah, but uh, that's The Heartbreak Kid. Caitlin, thanks for coming back on the show. It was a treat to have you back on again and do another kind of rom-com rundown. Do you want to tell anyone uh, about what they can expect coming up for The Simpsons, Not a Simpsons podcast? Um, yeah, we've been on a little bit of a... A break but we'll be coming back this summer more consistently finally sorry my chaotic and artistic spirit does not allow me to uh adhere to deadlines i guess um yeah so keep an eye out for that your, we'll your have podcast more is coming. like free jazz <laughs> it's improvisational <laughs> podcasting yeah <laughs> it's about the episodes you aren't releasing yeah yeah no we have a, a bunch recorded so they'll be They'll be coming out soon. Yeah, Excellent. this summer we'll we'll catch up. We'll be bi-weekly like we, we planned on probably. Um, hopefully. Yeah, other than that, you can you can find me on Twitter. It's Caitlin underscore Joey. Um, on the off chance that you're in Edmonton, come to the Underdog Comedy Show. I'm often there. But I don't know, there's maybe three people in Edmonton that listen to this, and I'm one of them, so... Yeah, I'll I will plug myself anyway. If you're if people are in the Edmonton area, I like to treat this. I was reading Exclaim last night, and the way that they have like ads for music festivals in Edmonton and in Saskatchewan, that like who is this for? If you don't live specifically in that market, but I kind of like to treat this show. This is like the Exclaim of Canadian podcasting. It's kind (laughs) of I wouldn't mind. I'll do this show for thirty years. I don't care. (laughs) <laughs> there's some they keep making more movies so yeah exactly um yeah caitlin thanks for coming on and uh we'll looking forward to hopefully having you on again sometime absolutely how tall a man are you i'm six three no you're not <laughs> how tall are you six two i'm six two and a half <laughs>
And that was The Heartbreak Kid. My thanks again to Caitlin for coming on the show. And if you enjoyed hearing her on this show, you can check out The Simpsons, Not a Simpsons podcast for more. Once again, if you enjoyed the show, thank you. You can help us out by rating, reviewing, subscribing, telling a friend, sharing an episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. Any of these things can really help out a small show like this and are much appreciated. In two weeks' time, please come back when I will be joined by comedian, community radio host, podcaster, Brendan Flaherty of Hardcore Haven and Please Explain Toronto to Me to discuss 1998's Can't Hardly Wait, written and directed by Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan. This is going to be a big episode in a few different ways. With this one, we've now done uh, every movie that uh, Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan directed. We, we've wrapped their filmography uh, with this forthcoming episode here. So you'll have to tune in for that and to help us celebrate. But until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.